If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome, everyone, to Moms Talk Autism today. Uh, before we begin the episode, we want to offer a little disclaimer to you and anyone else who may be listening around you. The main topic of our discussion with our guest today is suicide and suicide prevention. This subject can be very heavy and hard to confront, and we don't want anyone to be caught off guard. So this is your this is your friendly warning. We feel strongly that this is a topic that we all need to be aware of and educated about, particularly as it relates to parenting neurodivergent children. If you or someone you love needs to seek help, the U.S. Suicide Hotline for Calling and Texting is 988, and it is available 24-7. A quick Google search will bring up any other country's hotline as well as multiple language preferences and options. When you become a mom, you never imagine your child getting an autism diagnosis. It feels like your dreams have shattered, like a framed photograph falling off your mantle, exploding into a thousand pieces. But instead of trying to glue those pieces back together, this community of moms is here to help you build a new dream, a better one. So join in the conversation as us moms talk autism. Okay, so welcome today. Uh, this is Brittany. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Tosh, Natasha. Hi, guys. <laughs> and we are thrilled to be introducing our um, very special guest today. Ann Moss Rogers is a mental health and suicide education expert, professional speaker, trainer, and consultant. After her 20-year-old son, Charles, died by suicide in 2015, Ann Moss chronicled her family's tragedy in a newspaper article that went viral, and her blog, Emotionally Naked, has reached millions. She is the author of the award-winning memoir, Diary of a Broken Mind, and the bestseller, Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk, with co-writer Dr. Kimberly O'Brien. She has been a TEDx speaker, was featured in the New York Times, Variety Magazine, and was the first non-clinician invited to speak on youth suicide at the National Institute of Mental Health. So welcome, Ann Moss. We are th- so happy to have you on with us today. Thank you. And I appreciate your tackling this subject. I mean, I know it's a tough subject and people are like, oh, do I really want to listen to that today? <laughs> right. But I think it's really important. I think it is too. And and if you're not ready to listen to this today, you know what? That's Okay. But but don't forget, maybe come back to it. Maybe listen to it with somebody who 
can be supportive with you, you know, or you can listen to it separately and then discuss it with someone. I think that's really, really important um, to, to kind of build that community around you and feel comfortable discussing it with, with those who be also may be affected. So. Right. Cause suicide can be on this podcast in some very personal ways, you know, those tuning yes. in who may be concerned about their children may have a past experience. They may have lost a loved one to suicide. They may have felt that way in the past. They may struggle with day-to-day chronic suicidality. And really it's kind of a, a lifetime, you know, event for them to kind of work through that. So you have all types. And I think that's what makes it particularly sensitive, but also particularly important. And relatable. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ann Moss, we're going to turn the microphone over to you and um, let you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and your story. So I started noticing some issues with my son, Charles, in elementary school. Now, he would later be classified as what we call today neurodiverse uh, in terms of he had dyscalculia and ADHD but he wasn't on the spectrum. And conversely, Charles had incredible social skills. So I was always grateful for that because it does, it does really help for you to see that they can have friends and that, you know, they always do have friends and connections. Mm-hmm. So he started to feel kind of anxious and, uh, you know, I had trouble paying attention in elementary school. And their excuse for not doing anything was his IQ is too high. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I get that. And I mean, I remember the fifth grade teacher and I kind of looking at each other and looking at the administrator going, are you kidding? <laughs> That's just weird. But that was uh, a typical refrain that I heard throughout the school years. Throughout middle school, I saw some additional issues. Uh, Charles struggled with a sleep disorder starting at about the age of 18 months, and it got worse in middle school. And he had some called delayed sleep phase syndrome. What that means is he was unable to fall asleep before a certain hour. And like in middle school, that was 11 p.m. No, it was 12 p.m. by middle school. Well, That's pretty tough for them to get in a really good night's sleep. Fortunately, he was in a private school and it was like five minutes from our house. So he could get up at the last minute and make that 745 bell. That was the latest we could find. Middle school went pretty well. I wish we would have found an appropriate private high school because I really think that my son needed a, a smaller situation. Now, we all know that private schools don't have the support services for the neurodiverse community, and they would always repeat, well, you know, we don't support ADHD and uh, dyscalculia. However, it what override rode the decision for us in middle school was that smaller classroom, and that really helped them. But in high school, we couldn't find one that started late enough, that was close enough, that wasn't hyper-focused on, you know, college prep 
and you know, mm. grades, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that just wasn't trolled. You know, it's like let's that square Yes. And he never fit in and, you know, walked the same way that all the other kids did. I mean, he was a creative genius, so he had all those quirky, weird personality traits. He would start to use drugs and alcohol uh, his sophomore year. We had talked about that. He had said, no, I'll never do that. So I was really taken aback that he did. And I would find out later he was doing that to sort of normalize his mental health state. Mm-hmm. And alcohol and marijuana were first. And he struggled with sleep. So marijuana was a magic drug and it was going to help him sleep. And that's actually the first time I realized that he was using. I came home, he was taking a nap on the couch. He never, never napped, ever. <laughs> I mean, ever. So we come home, we see him napping. My husband and I'll step in the garage and both of us in unison, he's smoking marijuana. (laughs) I didn't smell it. (laughs) I just saw my son asleep. And then that use would start to escalate along with other drugs and alcohol. And he was trying to mask his depression and his thoughts of suicide. So late at night when he would not be able to sleep, and he was struggling, he would use those substances to sort of numb those thoughts. And of course, what did that do? That led to other problems. And when they use a substance, it robs them of the ability to develop other coping strategies. So it's really important these days to embed opportunities to build those strategies at home. And really... I think it's very difficult, but particularly difficult with with this population because they don't get as much face-to-face time with friends. I mean, you know, I talk about all the other groups that get less face-to-face time based on, you know, the, the past generations. But this group in particular, because they're different and they can often be isolated, bullied, you know, that sort of thing. So he would um, start to use a lot, and he would go to wilderness therapeutic boarding school. Those weren't plan A. I mean, we had just gone through all the other resources in the area, and we ran out of options. And our counselor that my husband and I were seeing to kind of usher us through all this said he needed to go to therapeutic boarding school. Also, which I found still find odd, is I brought up depression. I said one of his teachers said she thinks he's depressed. Oh, Charles is not depressed. We don't need to do that. That'd be a waste of time. (laughs) Wow. I mean, mean, and we would find out in wilderness for 32 grand, which would have been a $50 copay, that he suffered from major depression. And so I encourage everybody to get that psychological evaluation and ask for it by that name. You know, don't ask for a diagnosis. Don't ask if they suffer from depression. Say, can we get a psychological evaluation? Mm-hmm. So they, they give us that, yeah, and he's 
diagnosed also with anxiety, had the sleep disorder, which we knew about, the ADHD, which we knew about, and cannabis dependence, which I didn't know that had a name, but he was using that to self-medicate. He would end up coming home, becoming addicted to heroin, you know, going through the detox rehab recovery house. And he ended up back in detox, walked out with a friend. And for two weeks, we didn't know where he was. There was some communication. I got that last phone call that I didn't know was my last. And I didn't know that he was also telling me and screaming for help. And I didn't recognize what those phrases were and what my gut was telling me because I didn't know what to do and it wasn't on my radar. So I wanted to be on yours. Because when we feel that pit of despair in our stomach, we need to go with that and not let our brains override what we know in our, in our gut. And it's really hard for us to imagine this child with whom we've invested so much love and time and all that good stuff could really be, could fathom taking their own life. But it isn't about love. It's about the fact that they feel their burden. And in that moment, they feel like it's the only way to stop the pain. Mm -hmm. So we would be in a police car in a parking lot when we got the worst news of our lives that our son had taken his life. I thought for sure it would have been an overdose because he, by this time, he had an addiction to heroin. But all that was new to us, too. And I had only learned two days before that it was actually heroin. He had been to rehab, but he was over 18, so they didn't disclose any of that information. Mm-hmm. So I felt like a lot, of the, a lot of this time I was always kind of flying blind. And there were a lot of opportunities for them to educate me, for people to to tell me he was a suicide risk because I know that some of the tests he was taking showed him to be a high risk. They just never described what high risk meant. Mm -hmm. And when they would be telling us about the results, he was always sitting beside me and I'm like, do I ask in front of him? You know, is that okay? And I want you to know that talking about suicide doesn't give a child the idea And I do remember one point in the psychiatrist's office where I did ask about suicide. And I really wanted to kind of grab it out of the air and snatch it back in my pocket because it was just this really awkward pause. And they didn't answer the question. They glazed right over it. But here's what was interesting that I remember about that scene, and I can still see it. My son was poised on on the end of the sofa, leaning forward, wanting to know the answer. He wanted that conversation to get started because it had started to take up a lot of room in his head. And I think he really wanted to talk about it. He was just never invited to do so. So we have to recognize some of the things that they do and say are actually invitations for you to ask, are you thinking of suicide? Because they do want to talk about it. Um, After he died, 
I did not think I could survive this loss. Nothing. I've never felt hurt like that in my life. I'm a brain tumor survivor. I've survived a broken neck. Um, I was attacked at knife point and um, barely escaped rape and murder. But once my child took his life, I I thought I'd been through it until that happened. But I can tell you all those previous things that I'd gone through really helped me build the toolbox that I needed to learn how to move forward again. That healing process never ends. You do find a place where you can find joy again, but it's really hard. But here's what I want everyone to know that's listening, is that recovery is not only possible, it's probable. That although you're hearing a lot of alarming rates, it's still a rare event. And so we need to be on alert and we need to be there for our kids. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story. And um, Tosh, Tosh is being, uh, this is, this is hitting home for our, our Tosh. Um, Tosh, do you mind sharing a little bit of your story? Um, Whatever you're comfortable. I just first want to say, Ann Moss, I'm, I, um, and I remember listening to the podcast that you were on that Brittany had sent to me and um, I was fine and I didn't think that it was going to affect me. And I immediately called Brittany and I was um, just bawling because um, everything that you said about your son was exactly what I walked through. Um, wow. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to blame it on, you know, anything other than just a lack of understanding at a time when, um, you know, like it just, it wasn't talked about like it is now. I mean, thank God, you know, because now, now having, being able to have this conversation and have it be open and for it to be normalized is such a huge thing. Um, I, I, I did not ever know that I, um, had a neurodivergent brain. I had, I struggled in elementary school with, um, academics. You know, I was in different, uh, different programs for reading and math, et cetera. Um, did not receive a formal ADHD diagnosis until my adult life. But, um, you know, the first time that I tried to take my own life, I was, um, in seventh grade. So, and, and, and much like your son, you know, not, not, not fitting in, I I fit in, but there was just such this heaviness, this burden of, 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 you know, and I can't speak for your son, obviously, or your story, anything like that, but there, there is a heaviness of not feeling accepted. And maybe that's from our own personal perspective uh, because what we are going through in our own minds um and maybe it's a it's a, a gamut of things you know along with the the different diagnoses etc but um it it's just 
I think there's so many people out there like this, you know. Um, there are. And, and the ADHD that you brought up, we talk about it like it's a disability when why are we talking about it like it's a gift? So when I do mindfulness games with classrooms, I usually do an active one. We're not sitting there doing kumbaya and breathing because that's what everybody does. So I do one called mm -hmm. throwing sound. Everybody's standing up. They're throwing a sound to the next person. They're repeating it. Then everybody's laughing. So it's what is it doing? It keeps everybody in the moment, which is what you want to do with the mm -hmm. mindfulness activity. But it makes everybody laugh. And that creates mm -hmm. that sense of connection and belonging. And for my ADHD kids, and because that's what I had, I had a child who wanted to be active, they can really get into that game. They love it. So mm -hmm. that the kids who are typically the more impulsive ones are loving that game. And they're understanding, okay, I got to kind of stay in the moment, which ADHD kids do pretty well doing that. Mm -hmm. It's that mm -hmm. impulse control. And I think one of the most important skills we need to teach our children is the pause. Learning mm -hmm. how to not react, but to take that pause and that deep breath when they feel angry or any strong emotion. It doesn't mean that mm -hmm. emotion is bad and that you can't sit with that emotion. It just means before you react, let your brain settle, you know, mm -hmm. because you're not going to make a wise move. And the ADHD kids need more repetition to learn that skill, but it is absolutely critical for that population that struggles with impulsivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, um, <clears throat> you know, not knowing now having ADHD and having that be my uh, formal diagnosis along with um, borderline personality disorder, which was never, you know, I, it was like, same thing, just um, yeah. after, after the suicide attempt, there is throwing, you know, the, the specialist throwing noodles at the wall is what I would say is, it's just, oh, yeah. she's bipolar. Oh, she's, you know, she's this, it's like, they didn't really, they weren't really listening, you know, and, and then unfortunately, because of, of, you know, ADHD and, and the impulsiveness that leads to the other things, you know, it leads to those other, um, addictions that where we're, where we try to, where we try to numb that feeling, where we try to just continually not have to deal with that, you know, that surface feeling. So, um, it, that that's scary. That's scary to know that that scary. our children. Right. Yes. That it's it's scary to know that they are more likely to become you know addicted to drugs or have the the suicidal thoughts and depression, etc., anxiety, because of their other diagnoses. You know, um, it's huge. It's huge. Scared. They're scared to tell you yeah. because they don't know how you will react. Will you panic? Will you not be as proud of, of them? Mm -hmm. Will you go into some emergency mode, call an ambulance, and take all these steps that they are not ready to take or don't want to take? 
So Mm -hmm. giving them agency Mm -hmm. in that process is really important. Oftentimes when you talk about your child about their suicidal thoughts, most likely they're not going to be in ideation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people who are in active suicidal thoughts and It's interesting because like they're in a trance or suffering from a brain attack. They seem very detached and almost like they're somewhere else. And then, you know, we as adults will try to use logic and that's not what we need to do in that moment. We need to meet that person where they are. And if that's in darkness and despair, that's Mm -hmm. where we need to go. Yes. And yes. allowing someone oh, to feel heard is absolutely the most important step. And I always say you can stop suicide with your ears. And our kids today don't feel seen and they don't feel heard. And we need to look for opportunities, these kids especially that are struggling, to give them their power back. Where can we give them agency and you know their power back? And one of the things I tell parents is if your child has admitted to being suicidal or as, you know, had an attempt and they come home, what are you doing? You're freaking out. You know, Mm -hmm. any parent is, what do I do? I'm not qualified for this. Have a conversation with your child and you don't have to like spill your guts to the point that they're completely overwhelmed, but you can say, you know what? I am not handling this really well. I'm like texting you every time you walk out the door and that's not very helpful. So I'm going to go get me some help because, you know, this is, this is difficult, but if you would, and because of all this and because I love you so much and I'm so worried about losing you, I get all up in my head and I start projecting things and I'm working on that too. But if I'm kind of in that angry and irritable, I want you number one, not to take it personally and just give me a random hug. Again, Mm -hmm. what are you doing there? Mm -hmm. Giving them their power. Mm -hmm. They give Mm -hmm. you a hug. What do they feel? Cause they feel you just turn into a jellyfish. So they know Mm -hmm. immediately what they've done is effective, that they're important. So you've built that without saying anything. You've done that through touch. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's so, so, I mean, everything you're saying, Anne, is like, I'm so grateful to have, Anne Moss, to, I'm grateful to have it right now, but I, it, it resonates so deep. You know, I, I wish that that would have been the case. And, and I'm grateful to still be here and be alive. And, and um, um, but, you know, to have, to hear what you're saying is so important because um, I think as a parent, you know, we immediately try to go into this fix it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, we, we, whether it's suicide or, 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 you know, the addictions or, or both at hand, we, we, we want to fix things and we want to, and we want to change it. And, and in that, you know, we can get so upset with ourselves thinking 
that we are we've done something wrong. You know, like you said, maybe there's not enough love, or maybe we didn't do this correctly, or you know, they were raised in a great house. Why are they addicted to drugs? You know, um, there's so many factors that we're going through, but to to pause, like you said, and to just to be in that with them, you know, and not and not make them feel more broken, you know, not make them feel more alienated because they are having these thoughts or because they are um, in this, you know, um, but to, 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 to really be in that and hold that space for them with also, you know, letting them know, like, I, this is new to me. I, I'm, I'm new to walking through this. Like we, we have to do this together. We have to be there for each other together. Um, and what, what you just, just said there is one of the points I was going to make, and I wanted to put a bookmark on it. You're showing partnership when you do that. You're yeah. saying, I don't have all the answers, yes. but I'm with you when you say just what you did. So thank you for saying yeah. it that way. Yeah, you, you're a team. You're fighting it together. It's not me versus you. Yeah, it's us versus this together. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, um, Tosh. What are what are some things if you feel comfortable telling us what changed for you? What was what are some of the differences? What are some of the things looking back now that really helped you um, through that tough period of your life? Um. You know, Anne Moss. So, so you know, my story is obviously different than than your son's in in the sense of um, the the depression coming, you know, c- kind of first, and then it was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna experiment with, you know, I don't want to be on these medications. I don't want to be just continually taking these different things that numb me and make me feel even worse about myself. And then it's that's when I turn to, you know to street drugs and, and, and numbing myself in that sense. Um, um, and, the, and that, that continued for a lot of years along with a lot of other bad behaviors, which of course just made it even, you know, worse. Um, um, I feel lucky. I feel lucky that I was able to, um, have good people in my life that I, uh, was able to get through, I suppose, to get, get through those times and, and to find myself on the other side of, you know, recovery of, of recovering from being an addict. Um, um, but you know, there, it still, it still happens in adulthood now, you know? Um, and I, I, I think the biggest thing, like you said, talking about these things, you know, talking about these, these traumas, talking about what our kiddos, um, walk through, you know, on a daily basis, like you said, kids are bullied. Yes. But, but the neurodivergent community is much higher rate of, of being bullied and having depression and feeling alienated from, you know, not even just like friends, but like maybe even their family, you know, they, they can feel like a burden on their family. Um, and I just, I just think that having that open conversation and not so much like, like I said, like, we're going to fix you. (laughs) We're, we're over here. You know, we're this, we're this, whoever it is, your, 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 your parents, your medical team, your spouse, whoever it is, we're going to fix you. But just to really be like, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in this with you. I'm in this with you. And I can't be here without you. You know, I am going to do whatever it takes. You know, you are not a bad person because you've turned to 
you know, an addiction. You are not um, a bad person because you've had these thoughts. You know, I I can remember countless times of like how selfish, how selfish you are that you you know would would want to. I'm so sorry. You know, so I think about all these things now, and again, I am so grateful that I'm sitting on this side of it, and that it, and that, um, you know, that for me, that God had His plan with with all of this. There's this purpose, you know, and 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 having a neurodivergent child, and and knowing, um, um, but the things that that were said, and then the things that were not said, you know, um, and I just, I, I, I'm so grateful for people like you that that have taken such a traumatic situation and you're just changing, you're changing, you know, what it looks like you're normalizing it. And, and I, I if the rest of the country could just get on board yeah. with that, you know, yeah. um, and cause we do know what to do now because, yes. you know, the digital age moved in and it kind of blew apart our communities and our tightly knit communities. And it's kind of rearranged our whole social network. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really caught up, but now we kind of know what to do in terms of building those coping strategies. And we need to do them more in our educational settings and in our families. Yes. Yeah. We're still kind of in that punitive parenting versus wisdom, you know, and we need to be more wisdom guides, right? Right. You all have learned that part. You know, punitive parenting doesn't work with the neurodivergent, you know, community. And most not at all. <laughs> your audience yes, knows yes. that because guess what? They tune in to you all. They're trying to do the best that they can. All of you are trying to do the best you can. A suicide can happen no matter how hard you try, you can't absolutely be a hundred percent and and that is a scary place to be when you know a child is at risk but here's the good news if they told you they're far more likely to want to find recovery and Mm -hmm. you you're getting something I never got I never got a child to come tell me that and Mm-hmm. everyone that gets that confession after you get past that fear and that panic, and you're going to deep breathe through that because you're not going to panic in front of your child. Yeah. Is that sense of appreciation of, and being honored that they told you. Yeah. And lots of times I tell kids they're not in a family that might be accepting of it, you know, or just pray it away. And they have already said something to their child like, oh, you're just faking it. Not because they're bad parents, because you just can't fathom. Well, you have all this, you know, what can make you sad? Mm-hmm. I'm always like, bypass the parent. Don't tell your parent. Go tell your school counselor. Mm-hmm. Right? And that mm-hmm. way they've got the adult behind them. Well, that school counselor yeah. is not going to let go. <laughs> Usually they're going to say, no, we need to have a suicide risk assessment. This is where you call. And once you have that assessment, uh, you can come back to school. So yeah. parents are very motivated to go ahead and get that suicide risk assessment, which, and then, you know, establishing between the two what your goals are. So let's say your child does tell you 
that is the time if they have not done it already to put in the hotlines. You can do a coping card, which is sort of a pseudo safety plan. Um, and I'll provide the link for that. But it's also important that you communicate with your school counselor and maybe even your pediatrician so that, you know, they're going to keep that information private, but you need support and help, you know, figuring out what to do. And mm -hmm. I think another really important step is a support group. And mm -hmm. I did that when my son was struggling with addiction and I did it after when I was grieving. And I can tell you that finding people who are all also going through this and everybody thinks it's sort of this tree hugging, sitting around, chanting around a fire, kumbaya sort of thing. And it's, it's not. But if you want to know the best results, the best counselors, the best rehabs, you go to a group and they're the ones who are using those resources right now. So they know <laughs> where they are. And so you're kind of already in this place where, you, and you have people to reach out to. They're not going to give you advice. They're not professionals, but they're people who understand and will listen. And yeah. sometimes we need that too. Because I, yeah. I can tell you before and after his death, I realized I was hyper-focused on the 5% of parenting I did imperfectly. And I was totally ignoring the 95% I did right. And yeah. we beat ourselves up for those. I mean, who's perfect parent? Nobody. And yeah. that little negative mean voice in our head makes us feel like we're inadequate. And that's when we need to fight back, you know. Amos, why are you saying that to yourself? You need to pull for yourself. And be nasty bad, you know. Talk back to that voice that's like, that's not very nice. Sometimes I joke with it. But I don't, I don't let it by with that. And I've used that strategy since I was 15 years old. Wow. Yeah. We, we do, we talk about how that peer-to-peer no matter what it is, you know, whether it's addiction, you know, par you know, parenting autistic children, whatever it is that how important that is, you know, and, and, and it's not to take away from medical professionals. Of course they have a place and, and they're, and they are much needed, but um, it's very different when you are sitting down in a group of people who their journey is not exactly the same as yours, but it is, but you've walked the same journey, you know, or you're walking the same journey. It's, it's huge huge. Um, we talk about diversifying your portfolio a lot. Yes. And we apply that to um, whether that is your special needs team or a, a community support group. You need to have peer support. You need to have people who can truly empathize who have been through that experience with you. Mm -hmm. You need the medical side of it. You need the family side of it. You need the friends. You need local, you need social media, all of those things. If you have a little bit in all of those different areas as a parent of a neurodivergent child mm -hmm. or someone who is struggling with mental health or addiction of some kind, any whatever the problem is, whatever the, the need is, if you have it from multiple areas, we feel like that's the best, that, that's setting yourself up for the best chance of success in whatever, whatever um, you're struggling. And that's, that's what we try to encourage and, um, 
speak about. And so I want to talk about that a little bit with you um, mm-hmm. as far as like what what can we as parents do to um, maybe some signs and some things that we can be looking out for. And then also what can we like actually do as as parents? And then also you you mentioned the school setting. Yes. All of our children are in school in some capacity or form. What can schools be looking for? What can we as parents bring up to the schools to 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 help them be prepared to to maybe look for the signs and and help help our children? So I know that was a lot all at once. A lot. We can we <laughs> can break that down a little bit. Down and I actually was thinking. Oh, good. We haven't done the what are the signs and what do they say and, and that's a yeah. Let's talk about it. Part. And so some of the signs are. They're falling asleep in class. They're isolating a lot. Tough this this community because that is often part of the personality. But you know your child, and if they're isolating even more and sort of going into a shell, then that's a red flag. Going to the doctor a lot. Going to the school nurse a lot, back aches, headaches, muscle aches, uh, and those are not psychosomatic. They're real because when you tighten up a lot, you're gonna get mm-hmm. you're gonna get pains, mm-hmm. and that kind of I just don't feel good. I just don't feel good in my body, and they don't know what else to do. So the school nurse is there. I knew the first name of every school nurse my son ever attended. <clears throat> And because he suffered from depression, he also caught every flu, every cold, because it, you know, lowers your immune system. Mm -hmm. Um, Other signs would be reckless behavior or really kind of acting out a lot because they're frustrated and they're angry and they don't know how to express and it's scary and they just don't know what to do. So they'll act out. Mm -hmm especially Mm -hmm. this population, because they don't know any other way to communicate it. Um, Mm -hmm. Drinking and drugging more, kind of an escalation in that behavior. Usually you kind of feel it in your gut that something isn't quite right. And then, like I said earlier, you let your brain talk you out of what you know in your gut and don't let, don't do that. Keep always listen to that mama gut. Yeah. Right. Listen to that mama gut. It is right. Some of the things they say, I want to die. I feel so overwhelmed. I'm such a burden. I don't want to be here anymore. My son posted on social media. If I died, no one would notice for at least a month. I didn't see it until later, but he did a series of posts screaming for help. That's what those were. I mean, a kid who got retweeted hundreds of times for everything you put out there, this got two and like zero comments. He was a funny boy. He was a jokester. So they didn't know how to take it, but he used his humor. He used the mask of a clown to hide his depression. Yeah, He didn't want anybody else to hurt like he did so he made everybody laugh all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was part of it too. So <clears throat> what do we do? If you've, if your child's been going through a lot, maybe they are seem to be blue. They are getting bullied at school. Their grades aren't great. They're not get, getting much sleep. So suicide risk is a constellation of issues that 
you know, all, hit all at once. Nobody dies by suicide for one reason alone. It's always a constellation right. of risk factors that happen all at once and kind of converge and the person's just like, I've had it. Yes. So <clears throat> what do we say to our child when we think that, first of all, we need to have that conversation of telling, you know, something is going on with you and I, I don't know what it is, but I'm here to listen and then be quiet, let them talk. And once they start saying things like maybe they say, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. And then you would say, well, you know, a lot of times when people have suffered the loss of a loved one um, and say things like, I don't want to do this anymore, they're thinking about suicide. So I need mm -hmm. to ask you, are you thinking of suicide? If they are a younger child, you want to ask, are you thinking of making yourself dead? Okay. Because younger kids can also have intention, usually starting around the age of eight. Mm -hmm. And we want to intervene early because early intervention is so effective. So a lot of people don't want to ask that question because what? It's like, oh, my God, I can't fix it. No, you can't. But if you know, let me tell you, it unleashes all that stuff they've had stuffed up in their head. And now it's kind of out and they're sharing it. And the burden is, is not as great. It becomes less heavy just in that conversation. So you, if you are in a place where they are in ideation and you're totally, I don't know what to do next. Call 988 or call seven four or text 741741. Or there's always a county resource that you can reach out to that's a crisis line. That's actually your best bet. And I can't tell you what yours is because, you know, it's different in every county in the United States. Find out what that number is and put it in your phone. You would call that number and say, I am concerned about my child. Call with that child. If you can, mm -hmm. because you want to give them agency and partnership in this process, put it on speaker. So if they want to talk and intervene at any time, they have the ability to do that if they're verbal and, and they may not be, which in that case, obviously you can't include them in that way. But once you call, say, my child has said this, and I don't know what to do next. What is our next step? And they'll tell you what those next steps are. The other, again, is the school counselor. Some school districts have 24-7 school counselors. And mm -hmm. you can reach out to them and go, what do I do now? Don't be afraid to engage them because, you know, you fear that you've got to get this risk assessment and they can't go back. Because usually you can get one pretty quickly because this is obviously an emergency. You're not typically going to be put off for a suicide risk assessment for a couple of weeks. I mean, you know, it's like right. heart attack. we got to deal with this now. Oh, let's put that mm -hmm. heart attack on hold and why don't you come help yeah. me in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. They see it as an emergency. Um, I wouldn't go 911 unless they are standing on the edge of a bridge 
and right. you know you're ten feet away and you are in fear right. of you know them going over. But even then, when if you do need to call nine one nine one one, ask if there's anybody with CIT training, crisis intervention training, because those are the people who are going to be more empathic and know how to handle the situation better. So be yes. a squeaky wheel. I want somebody that understands mental health, has dealt with these concerns. Don't send me somebody who's, you know, just going to be a gun and a badge. You know, I need somebody right. who can de-escalate the situation if necessary, because sometimes children who are suicidal that are neurodiverse can, and this is rare, but it happens, they can become violent. Typically, they're more at risk for having violence against them. But it does happen the other way where the parent is afraid for their own safety and they have no other choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may not be able to get all, all that in a 911 call, but think now. I, I want somebody with mental health training and let them know this is a mental health crisis. Is there any support you can send with that? Not all counties have it. Ours does. But some of those rural com communities, they, they don't all have that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Always yeah. follow up the next day. How are you feeling today? First words, I, they'll be humiliated. I can't believe I told you that. I can't believe I had those thoughts. That's when you reiterate it. I am so honored that you shared this with me, that you felt like you could trust me with this information. And it is, it is the bravest thing you've ever done. Mm -hmm. Let them know from the heart. And they'll feel that when you say, that's the bravest thing you've ever done. And I know it took a lot of courage to tell me. And I really appreciate that. Because they're going to have that suicide ideation hangover the next day. And so that's why it's really important. And then that's when we follow up. And whether you not, you know, most pediatricians that I've talked to say, I really want to know too, because, you know, you want, to be able to approve communication between all the therapist and the uh, pediatrician and have you involved in the school counselor because that team approach is usually what is going to get you the best results. Yeah, and the mm -hmm. collaboration of everyone yes. working together is going to be always the best choice. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate all that. I think those are all really practical, like, kind of hold in your hand things that you can do. Um, right. if, if you know that they're available, it, it's hard to do something if you don't know it's available, right? Right. And that that's why it's this is so important to talk about and to feel comfortable. And I really, really wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned again, just in that last bit about how if you bring up the word, if you say the word suicide or hurting yourself or, you know, making yourself dead or however you phrase it, if you bring it up first, that is not implanting in that child's mind. Like, oh, yes. no, this is available to me. This is what I'm yeah. I, I think a lot of us parents are scared to say that, oh, yeah. or to say that word or, or anybody if you're concerned about another person because you're afraid that you're going to then 
be the catalyst that starts that process. And that's, that's not true. And it's also true. I find there's a correlation with that, with even an autism diagnosis or another, um, you know, disability of some kind. If I say the word, then it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really, really hard for us to get past that. Um, I, I know a lot of people that, you know, I'll talk to them about neurodiversity or about autism or about things with their child, you know, cause they're a little concerned and, and I encourage them to go get tested or go get some help or, or go talk to their doctor about it. And they're terrified because if I talk to my doctor, well, then what then if it's it, true? Mm-hmm. What if it's mm-hmm. true? Then mm-hmm. it's true. And now, and now somehow that guilt or that, that, sh- that feeling of like, I, I made that happen. It's, it's, it's irrational, but it's, it's what we do as humans. It's a very human thing to do. So mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. really wanted to emphasize that and make sure people feel comfortable, like it's not comfortable, but feel aware and know that it's okay to say it. It, it, mm-hmm. it makes it real, but it also makes it, it, it's not as maybe as scary. It's not as it, it's okay to talk about it. And it makes your, your child maybe feel more comfortable sharing if they know that you can say it too, you know? Well, I'm going to tell you that once you ask, before you ask the question and leading up to it, you're going to be uncomfortable. You may even be sure. ter- terrified. Practice in your shower, take a deep breath, ask it anyway. Know that, set the expectation, this is going to be uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. it will always be uncomfortable. Like over the years, it's become easier for me because I've asked it so many times, but it's never completely comfortable. I always err on the, I really don't want to ask. And it's the first thing that hits my head. I don't want to (laughs) ask, you know, Mm because then I got to like do stuff and to kind of take a deep breath going, but you know, I'm all she's going to (laughs) ask. Well, it's, it's, it's a muscle that you've developed. You're very strong at being able to do that now because you've done it. You've practiced. You've, yeah, like you said, practice in the shower, practice with a friend that that is willing to talk to you about it, you know, uh, talk with a spouse, whoever it is, you know, prepare mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. I've yes. had an audience of thousands and I'm like, you all have to ask the question and we count to three and you're all going to say, are you thinking of suicide? And, you know, after mm-hmm. they do it, they're like, I'm like, how comfortable was that? Not very. Right. Yeah. Right. And you're not going to want to do it. And you're going to want to say, are you thinking of harming yourself? Because you want to soften it. You don't want to say that word. Mm. You've got Mm -hmm. to say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you thinking of suicide? You can also Mm -hmm. ask, what was your plan? How were you thinking of ending your life? That gives you more okay. information to get rid of whatever it is they were going to use. Yes. You don't have I like to that. ask that, but you can. And lots of times they want to tell you. And a lot of people say, I don't need to ask that. They'll just think of something else. Mm-mm, not really. Usually they fantasized mm-hmm. about that for a long time. And mm-hmm. I noticed that in my son's music. He didn't talk about it any other way of ending his life. For years, he wrote about the same method, and that's how he ultimately died by suicide. So they typically, and if they tell you, then you can remove access to means, which puts more time between thought and action. Because think about the kid who takes too many pills and then 
comes kind of out of it. And then they go find their parent and they're like, I just took, you know, such and such Tylenol, which by the way, is a 911 emergency. And Tylenol, you can overdose, it can kill someone, and it can cause serious liver damage. So you need to act really quickly. And they'll call poison control. So you can call poison control first, or you can call 911. They're going to call each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is that they're kind of coming out of, of the sort of trance. And they don't want to die anymore. So let's say in England, they put Tylenol in the little blister packs. Once they did that, overdose and over, and death by suicide from Tylenol went down almost 50%. Because mm-hmm. pushing those pills out one by one put more time between thought and action. And people just kind of, it just petered out and they didn't want to do it anymore, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, after it took so much time. So do not get those, you know, warehouse size, buy it in small quantities. It will be more expensive, but you and your child's life is worth it to get the teeny tiny little, even with Abdel. Abdel is less dangerous than Tylenol, but it's still possible. Benadryl is another drug of abuse. They'll take a lot of those to get a hallucinogenic effect. And mm-hmm. a lot of kids are dying because it'll take mm-hmm. 20 of those. So get whatever you can in blister packs and small quantities of those over-the-counter medications. Interesting. Well, and and I would say just unfortunately, Ann Moss in, in you know, the 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 good the good and the evil with technology these days mm-hmm. um, is that it at, that those resources are right at their fingertips and and knowing you know oh I don't have to take a whole bottle of Tylenol I can um, I have a friend whose parent has this and then the other friend's parent has this and right. I just mix these two you know um, and and so you're absolutely right like having that 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 hard conversation how were you going to do this you know because most kids are not going to tell you that they're going to pick up a gun and, and, and shoot themselves or whatever, you know? Um, and, and, and I, and I think too, the reality of you hearing that as a parent and, and having that actual, they, they, you know, this is not, they're not just a child just thinking, you know, whatever, like they, they have thought this through. There is, there is this action plan this is something to take seriously. Like not, not that you would not take it seriously, but I'm just saying it's 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 bigger than maybe you thought it was. You right. Know? Well, um, fi- access to firearms is is the most important. Uh, you know. Yeah. And a lot of families aren't willing to put the bullets three miles down the road. At least mm-hmm. get a thumbprint safe. But I remember Dad telling me, "Well, I have it under lock and key," and when I interviewed. The young man, he said, oh, yeah, a dad keeps his gun in, locked in his desk drawer. And if I go up the trellis and the second floor and he keeps this window open, I go through that window mm-hmm. and he keeps the door and keeps the key to that drawer in a coffee mug. And I just open it and he knew exactly mm-hmm. where it was, what kind of gun it was. And mm-hmm. so I told the dad and I said, just so you know, 
if you want to keep your family safe, do you want to talk mm-hmm. about where that what is that comfortable place for you? Because your son knows exactly where it is and's obviously held it in his hand, and this has happened before. You know mm-hmm. what? You, what do you want to do? Because I'm not going to come in with bla- you know on my blazing saddle. Get rid of your guns. It's not going to go over yeah. well. I want yeah. to help you figure out what you're willing to accept and do for your family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you, Ann Moss, that the, you know, you talked about how it can come at even the earliest age of eight, eight. Um, and, you know, and when I sit and I think about, um, you know, when a lot of us got our child's diagnosis from a, a, a younger age, how many IEPs we go through over the years, you know, um, and then just thinking about like Brittany and I's specific situation right now where our, you know, <clears throat> our kiddos are getting ready to enter middle school here, you know, in the next couple of years. That to me is like a huge, huge red flag. You know, that's something that I want to start right now to be proactive with um, and, and just know in my, in my mind that that, that this is a, my child has a higher, you know, probability of depression, of thoughts of suicide, et cetera. Um, and just being honest with, you know, with myself. Um, how, how do you think, like going to the IEP table with our team and talking to them, especially maybe in that last year of transitioning from elementary school into middle school, because it's going to look so vastly different for our kiddos. It's going to get harder. And, and again, we, you know, like I said, social media in and of itself is just another level of our kiddos having a way of. Oh yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you the two people that have reached out me to me and that I've communicated with the longest are both on the spectrum and they both struggle with suicidal thoughts. And I've been emailing or messaging back and forth with them for over two years. One is a young adult, the other is teenager. And, you know, they're asking, well, she said this, what do I do? You know, they're, they're struggling with those social skills that come naturally to a lot of us. So I think educating them ahead of time, your children, if you can, if they're in that place of this is not going to be an easy transition. What kind of coping skills are you going to use? But also letting them know that everyone feels really nervous and really anxious making this transition. Because yeah. we know that that transitions and relationship disruptions are both places that make kids more vulnerable. So it's going to make this population even more vulnerable. What yes. works really yeah. well in this population is making sure right before they make that transition, that you create those, that you do a lot of routine. If, you know, if mac and cheese works for them, make sure you have mac and cheese every Wednesday night, you know, (laughs) just little simple things, little routines that you can put into place and stick with so that they feel, you know, all along the way. So they feel that, that support, but I also think communication with the school. So, yeah, you know, there there are tips for parents at home 
And then there's talking with the school, knowing that it's going, but I'd also be honest with the children that, you know, what are your coping skills? What are your coping strategies? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the young ladies that I talked with, she's getting ready to go into, I think, high school. She says, I used to be made fun of it. I don't care anymore. I need to rock. I need to rock back and forth a lot. My, my mm-hmm. son needed to home. And people would complain, but that was his way of calming down. And I told the teacher, I said, you can move him, but don't tell him to stop humming because that Mm -hmm. is the strategy he's using. And just put him next. I mean, he's a popular kid. There's somebody in that class that wants to sit next to him anyway. So just Mm -hmm. move him next to somebody who's not as sensitive to his humming. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And that's the Perfect kind of thing to put in an IEP, to bring yes. that up at the table so they're yeah. aware and that is included in his education or her education, you know, program. Yeah, that's that's a, a wonderful example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I went and I kind of cherry picked teachers, particularly for him too, because mm-hmm. there were just teachers that were better, a better match for him yeah. emotionally. Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, go ahead, Tosh. Oh, I'm just the head exploding emoji. I'm I'm just all just (laughs) I don't know what I am right now. I'm just grateful and does it um, help to does it help to kind of be heard and to kind of let it all out? You know, I I mean I I have shared my personal story so much, um, and I'm I am as odd as this sounds, I'm grateful for it. You know, I'm, I, I, it's sitting me here in the seat right now and making me more aware that this is, um, a huge possibility for both of my kids, but especially for my son, Jack, who's neurodivergent, you know, um, and, and just really wanting to do the, the, the proactive things to, to have myself and my husband, you know, my husband, especially he was not, he never even, heard or seen or any of this until he got into his career as a fireman and he sees it all the time and it's still just so hard for him, you know, and, and, um, really hard but it's, it's so, years. yeah, it's so common now though, you know, it's so, um, common and it, and it's like you said, it's, there's so many layering factors, right? It's not just like, oh, we're in a mental health crisis. Yes, we are. But at the same time, it's, it's coming from things that have been, you know, Building, yeah. building, you know, whether it's a neurodivergent kiddo and, and, or whatever it is, family struggles or all of these things like layered on top of each other. Um, I've been watching, or, yeah, I've been watching the process since 2003 mm-hmm, and I was like mm-hmm. watching surfing patterns and things that people were and how, anyway, I've been watching it since 2003 and I mean, yeah, I've been yeah. watching the escalation and you see the ticking time bomb and yeah, it was like COVID put a foot on the accelerator. Yes. And yeah, it really yeah. did. The good, the good I, part is there's a spotlight on it now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why, that's why we wanted to have you on today and to have mm-hmm. this, this really hard, but important discussion. And we, we really, really appreciate you well, thank yes. for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. We've done a lot of talking today. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's been so good. I, I really hope that this is helpful, not only to parents or maybe educators out there, but if you yourself are struggling with this, please, yeah. please reach out to those who care and will will help you um, mm-hmm. and take, take advantage of those relationships. You know, there are, there are people who love you and, and want you to, to get the help you need. Mm-hmm. Um, Ann Moss, how can people reach you or learn more about you? So you can go to mentalhealthawarenesseducation.com or just look up a Moss Rogers. And if you get to my website, Mental Health Awareness Education, click on books. You'll see my books, but there's also a bunch of free ebooks on that page. And you know, mm-hmm. tips for going back to school. We talked about so there's a lot of tips in there about making that transition. Signs of depression. Mm-hmm. What do you do if your child has admitted they're suicidal? What, what is that next step? I do a lot of speaking and training at schools. So I like to go in and I like to talk to at least the parents and the teachers. The students, it, it's nice. Or I can at least tell the teachers how they need to address it with the yeah. students. Because they're the ones that oh, have I think, direct relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So you will the, travel for, for schools if they can I, bring you out. And, right. And, perfect. and I don't, unfortunately, I can't do it for free. I'm trying to get sponsors no. and underwriters, but I'm not funding my passion for yachting, ladies. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, well, that's wonderful. We will definitely uh, add a link to our show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll link the books, of course. And um, we just want people to have, just like Tosh said, there's good sides and bad sides to all of our amazing internet and you know social media right. and all these wonderful things. This is a good way to use, utilize those tools yeah. is to, yeah. to connect with Ann Moss and, and the other resources that she's attached herself to. So uh, we're just so grateful you're here today. Thank you for being vulnerable, both of you, Tosh and Ann Moss, and sharing your stories and sharing these personal, very, you know, um, sometimes scary things that, and, and you're doing it out of love and and knowing that it it will help others. So I appreciate you both. Yeah. Thank you, Ann Moss. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here, everyone. Uh, don't forget to check out our website as well, momstalkautism.com and our Instagram at momstalkautism. And we will see you next week. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye.